0: So we, the format is this: questions from this week, and I guess it's fair enough since we haven't had an ABF the last two weeks to be the last two messages as well. And then, um, when we get done with questions, somebody dropped an earring. Anybody? Anybody?' This is an earring? heart on it. Oh There you go. That's good. I was about to stick it in, stick it in my note. I was about no, the thing is, I pierced my nose when I was a teenager, and it hasn't closed. So every now and then, I'll just completely scandalize my mother and just, you know, hi, Mom. The ear didn't close either. It's weird, man. I don't, I don't get it. Um, okay. So questions. Then I've got a handout of paper. To cover some things, but questions. Um, I've I've heard it at least that Elsa. Why don't you kick it off? You said you had questions. You got the microphone. Related to Luke. Not related to Luke. Okay then. Sarah's got a question. We need two mics. Elsa needs some help. All right. Here we go. Okay, this is from the sermon last week. Uh-huh. Um, you were talking about the woman who came and uh, came to the Pharisee's house, the prostitute woman. The it's, sinner, whatever yeah, the, that the means, sinner. It's yeah, it's bad. Yeah. It's bad. So um, why was she even allowed in the house? Oh, there's all types of weird speculation on that one. Here's the short, short answer. If you compare this account of Simon the Pharisee, there's a guy named Simon the leper. Or a very similar account happens in uh, John. And so some people want to argue, actually, that Simon the Pharisee is Simon the leopard. That's possible. Some people go a step further and want to argue he's Lazarus or he's Lazarus' father. That seems less likely to me. Um, but f- frequently, these homes are going to be somewhat open. You're opening a feast, someone's sneaking in, and plus, they're not going to want to touch her. I mean, they're, they're not going to want to... You're in the Mediterranean, in the Middle East. You've got open windows, that air is supposed to move through. For whatever reason, she was able to get in. Um, There's no indication that she's invited, but apparently, maybe they were even eating outside in a courtyard or something. I mean, don't have all the same assumptions that we have. Their homes were much smaller than our homes today. And so for whatever reason, she's able to get in there, whether she just sneaks in, whether they're open doors. Whether or not it's outdoors, I don't know. But she, The reason I say this, if, if there is, I think it's unlikely, very unlikely, that it's Lazarus' father. I can't imagine Luke not mentioning that, especially while Simon the Pharisee is reasoning to himself, he would know what sort of woman my daughter is, which would be this, if it is. Um, I think it's far more likely, by the way, that uh, this sign of homage and reverence um, occurred twice. If, if a common way of showing honor to someone is to anoint them, then all you have to say is two women at two times in Jesus' ministry anointed him. Because the other problem is if you if you equate the account in Luke 7 with the account that happens two days before the crucifixion, it doesn't. Luke doesn't state absolutely that it's that it's chronology. So you wouldn't have a contradiction. It is weird for then Luke to place that in his Galilean section of Jesus' ministry prior to when the days were fulfilled, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's conceivable, it doesn't contradict Luke, but everything about his structure and his orderly account would suggest this took place in the Galilean ministry. And the other account that's similar takes place two days before the crucifixion in Bethany, um, which Luke knows about and has Jesus visiting. So it it's far more likely in my mind that it's two separate accounts, but it is interesting if you... Um, if you just type into Google, is Simon the Pharisee, Simon the leper, you'll find all sorts of interesting crossovers. That's possible, but still, I think, less less than likely. It's just such an odd thing, from our perspective, anointing someone's feet, that um, for it to happen twice, it has to be the same thing. But if you accept this is a custom, in fact, in the example with uh, Simon the Pharisee, Jesus' correction to him shows... You gave my feet no washing. You gave my head no anointing. These are common enough things that a host is supposed to do, which also he, in every point, contrasts the woman. You gave me no greeting. She hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. You did not wash my feet. She's washed my feet with her hair. You did not anoint my head. He does not say the corresponding, but she has. In the the account, and the event that takes place in Bethany, she does, which would seem really odd for Luke not to include that considering it would make the parallelism perfect. You didn't, she did. You didn't, she did. But in Luke's account, he doesn't say the corresponding she has because the text doesn't give us her anointing Jesus had just his feet. But in John's account that takes place two days before the crucifixion of what I think is a similar but different event, she does. So for all, anyway, for all those reasons, I think it's just far more likely two women had the similar idea of how to honor Jesus and the Gospels recorded. But that doesn't really answer your question. It's The real answer to your question is I don't know... Their security probably isn't as tight. <laughs> and when you're having a big feast, you can sort of sneak in, and these guys would move, shrink back away from her. There wouldn't be any, what are you doing, young lady? They'd be, oh, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd be way too posh to, uh, to touch her. Yeah, well, it just seemed odd to me that after you emphasized how they didn't want to become unclean, hmm. that, oh, well, we're just gonna let this unclean person come into our house. Well, and Luke's telling, when she heard she went straight away, is this was a very sudden, yeah. quick thing. Mm. So it, it, she, she finds out where Jesus is. She makes a beeline to that house. She goes straight in, and she falls at his feet. And then everyone's kind of like, awkward. <laughs> you know. Um, and the thing I love about that story is Jesus doesn't turn to look at her until much later in the story. We're told when Jesus turns to look at her. So presumably she's doing this, and Jesus is just carrying on eating there no no. look at the movement in the text he talks to Simon Simon I'm having something to say to you she's presumably still doing this because the Greek verb tenses are imperfect it's taking place and Jesus even insists that she hasn't stopped doing this so she's, this isn't just something she does quickly this is taking time and Jesus doesn't turn to her he doesn't respond to her he just accepts it and then he starts talking to Simon then the next thing he says is turning to the woman he said to Simon he's still not talking to her he's looking at her now and then finally he says to her at the very end of the account, go in peace, your sins have been forgiven you. He does speak to her, he blesses her, gives her peace, announces forgiveness of sin. But it's amazing as this awkward thing is happening and Jesus is, from what we can tell in Luke's account, taking no notice of it. Or, or what he's noticing is Simon. That's the interaction that he plays there. So I can just, I just try to repicture the event. Here's this scandalous thing happening and it would be loud and noisy. She's weeping. It's not quiet. I mean, and he sort of just keeps happening, and Jesus is just sort you know, eating, doing his thing. And so Simon's just sitting there and musing to himself, this man or a prophet, he'd know what sort of woman this was who's touching him. And then the movement is Jesus talking to him. Anyway, I just find that whole text fascinating. Sorry, you got me. I see I got these like flashbacks of Luke. I'm like, oh, I remember that. That was a great text. That was a good time. Anyway, sorry. Um, thank you. Yeah. Linda. Yes.
1: Okay, I'll follow that up because it's kind of along the same line. So a few weeks ago you had mentioned that the woman with the issue of the blood, that Jesus honestly didn't know who touched him. And I always kind of understood that to be more for her benefit for him to say that so that people would see, first of all, that she got healed, and second of all, that she trusted enough just to know that just touching him would heal her, not that he, you know, it's huh. kind of hard to think he didn't really know since, I mean, I'm, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying I've just kind of always looked at it as it was right. more for her benefit when he stopped everybody and turned around and did that.
0: Sure. No, that's, that's possible. Um, certainly, unless Jesus, there's at least one instance When Jesus says, no one, not even the Son, knows the day or the hour of his return, where Jesus frankly admits to not knowing something. I mean, there's no way I can take that. There's at least one thing in Jesus' humbled earthly state he didn't know, and that's the day or hour of his return. So once we've opened up the fact that Jesus is not walking around omniscient in the Gospels, then to me the most natural reading, the way Luke presents it, is he doesn't know. It's conceivable what you're saying is true. He did know he's doing this to draw her around. It's possible, um, nothing in Luke's telling leads me to think that. Nothing in the way Luke presents it. So Luke has Jesus returning in the power of the sp- like Let me give an example. Go to John 5. Luke 5. Sorry, Luke 5. Um, well, Luke 4, then we'll go to Luke 5. And again, I'm just trying to take it the way Luke's framing it, um, or at least the way I think Luke's framing it. So in Luke 4, we have um, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, this is important because I think what Luke wants us to conclude is that when Jesus does powerful miracles, it's the outworking of the Spirit's power, not his own natural power. In other words, I, don't, I think Luke wants us to understand. I think what Luke wants us to conclude the miracles Jesus does are done in the power of the Spirit, not his own innate power. And that's, I think, confirmed in Luke 5. Um, look at Luke 5. In verse, um, where is it? Yeah, 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So Luke seems to be pointing the reader to the fact that Jesus' miracles are done in the power of the Spirit, they're done in the power of the Lord, not fundamentally as the outworkings of his own, which he does have innate power. He's not utilizing his innate power, he's relying on the Spirit and the power of the Lord's on him to heal. So all the miracles we've just seen, the the paralytic that we're about to see, the the leper, and all the miracles in chapter 4, and the healings, I think Luke is leading us to conclude are done in the power of the Spirit, done in the power of the Lord, not done in Jesus' own innate power. Not denying Jesus has innate power, that's not how he's doing it. That's not the power he's utilizing. um, I I think that's what Luke wants us to conclude. Likewise, Luke showing us Jesus' learning has done nothing to make me think Jesus is walking around constantly um, omniscient. So then when I get to chapter, where's the woman who touches him? Seven? Um, No, eight. Nope, nine. One of these. Hold on. Where is it? Nope. Nope. Is it eight? Where is it? Oh, it's eight. There it is, eight. It is eight. Okay. Um, verse uh, 42. Uh, in the middle of 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Now, part of the reason why I think Jesus doesn't know is Jesus not only asked the question, now he tells us why he's asking the question. And it's his perception of power going out of him. So I think we're starting to move towards dishonesty. If No, I know perfectly well who touched me, because I know she touched me. I know someone touched me because I felt power go out for me. That's his ground for why he's, he's asking the question, which I think, I wouldn't die in the hill. You, you could be right, but I think everything I'm seeing in Luke is leading me to think, no, he genuinely doesn't know who touched him. What he does know is power's gone out from him, and therefore someone must have touched me. Who is it? I, I think. But I'm just trying to take my cues from the author um, and, and what, he, what I think he wants me to conclude. So when Jesus gives reasoning for why he asked the question, he does no power went out from him. And that's why he's asking. Which, I mean, could he know? I tend to think, Linda, that certainly the gospels do show Jesus evidencing supernatural knowledge. There's no denying that. Um, you give the example of uh, John one to Nathaniel, while you while I was a far away off, I saw you underneath the tree. Right? How do they you know that? Or we have examples of Jesus knowing people's names. Zacchaeus, come down from there. Today salvation has come to your house. Right. There are likewise examples of prophets in the Old Testament knowing things they have no business knowing either. The simplest example would be Elisha and the axe, not the axe, and Naaman. Naaman and Elisha. So Naaman comes and he's healed and he wants to give a great gift to Elisha and Elisha says no. But then his servant runs after him and says, Elisha changed his mind. And they give him the garments and they give him the silver. And Elisha somehow knows this has happened and the guy is struck with leprosy. So we have examples in the Old Testament of prophets empowered by the Spirit of God gaining supernatural knowledge. If I had to guess, and I think this is the direction Luke's going, it couldn't be dogmatic, that's likewise how I'm to understand Jesus' evidences of supernatural knowledge, that he voluntarily limits himself to what he's going to know. The, the example I used, I want to be very careful, I'm not denying the deity. If you have... Um, I, if you have like my we we bought a a used van for our family but it happens to be the van with all the bells and whistles but if I could somehow have a button that turned off power steering that turned off all the the bells and whistles I could say driving my car is no different than driving the, the normal version of the van yet at the same time my van is still the deluxe version so if Jesus doesn't utilize any special abilities that you and I don't have then I think you can take passages like he was made in every way like us, in every respect, yet without sin. He was tested and tempted like us in all ways, yet without sin. He was likewise had to be made like his brethren. All those passages about the similarity of his experience in ours can hold up and still insist at all times he possessed the attributes of God. I'm just saying he didn't at all times utilize the attributes of God. Seems to be the best way to put those two things together. Yes, Elsa.
1: So my follow-up to that is then after his resurrection, oh, that changed. Off. Oh, right, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that totally
0: changed. Yes, totally changed. This is only for his humiliation. What, what Philippians 2 refers to is he emptied himself. Um, and no, 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 that is no longer the case. Absolutely not the case. Now he's the Lord of glory. Now he is in full possession of all of his rights and privileges, um, and there's no humbling of himself any longer absolutely we we can talk more and we can't be absolutely dogmatic i'm just trying to go where the evidence and the text is pointing me that's all but i get what you want to guard against is uh, in a non divine jesus and he's he's yes oh Hello? Oh, there you are. <laughs> Sorry.
1: Totally different thing. All right. um, you mentioned theology, yes. I think, um, and that word seems to put a lot of people off, a lot of ah. Christians, as, yes. as if kind of you're saying Pharisee.
0: Uh, okay, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so can you address that mm-hmm. further?
0: Yeah. Um, the- theology, all theologies, whether it's anthropology or whatever, is simply the study of a topic. So theos to be the study of God. Everyone, therefore, is a theologian. Everyone has beliefs about God. Um, now, there, I think the reason probably why it throws people off is generally the only people they hear using that term are more academic and more um, sort of sitting in their armchair, armchair theologians, pie in the sky type of stuff. We're all theologians. Everyone has beliefs about God, even atheism. I mean, the two tenets of atheism is there is no God, and I hate him. So those are the two primary tenets of atheism. Um, I'm, not, no, I'm not even joking. You, no, you talk to an atheist, usually there's a deep anger, bitterness at God. How could a just God? I'm so, you know. And uh, so we're all theologians in that sense. We're all... We're all um, coming to our beliefs about God. So every, everybody has to be a theologian. R.C. Sproul's got a book, Everyone's a Theologian. Um, now part of, part of the frustration can be that every guild, and what I mean by guilds, every grouping is going to have terminology, whether it's car mechanics, whether it's carpenters, whether it's sports aficionados. There's going to be terms that you use within the guild that communicate clearly and communicate effectively. But there's a secondary function guild speak serves, and that's keeping people out, making dividing line. And so another sort of obnoxious thing theologians can do is use terms to keep people out. You know, so it's it's why I try not to use some of the bigger words in sermons. Occasionally I will, if I think maybe you'll encounter it in a book. Like this is this this is what some people call this, just in case you're reading, you encounter subcanonic theories of the incarnation, which is what we were just discussing a minute ago. Oh, you yeah. know, but that's the guild speak for it. You know, and, and amongst people who know what I'm talking about, that is an effective and helpful way to communicate. It's not simply pompous. It, it, amongst people who know it, it's just as helpful as two mechanics using precise terminology about you know timing, rotor. What, I, I can't even fake it. You know? um, your your blinker fluid's low. You know, I, I'd, I'd fall for that. I'd fall for that. You know, um, so but no, but the problem is you can just as easily shut people out and be a pompous jerk with guild speak. You know, and so, so that you uh, I think it can get a bad rap that way So, but we know we're all theologians we're all coming to understand beliefs about who God is we're all coming to beliefs about the way the world is we all have beliefs about what's right and what's wrong we all have beliefs about how people ought to act we all have a theology, every one of us whether or not it's a coherent theology whether or not it contradicts itself whether or not it's well thought out that's up for grabs um, is Scott Kern here? No, he, he, Scott Kern had a friend he, he brought over so that we could try to evangelize her, um, and she had one day she probably came up two or three times. Really, really sort of free spirit, off the walls, fun person. But but when she laid out what she believed, it was this amazingly complicated pastiche pastiche of like Hinduism, and it, it was just weird. It like had reincarnations, it had levels, and it, it was really really um, bizarre. And, you know, and I sat there, and she explained it all out, and and I said, that is fascinating. Um, No, really, it was. It was something. She was excited about it. And I said, you know, if you're right, I think I ought to quit what I'm doing and get on board with that. Um, The question I have for you is, what makes you think that's right? Like, where'd you learn that from? Who taught that to you? What do you see in the world that you think makes that true? And she looked at me like I had three heads. Clearly, that thought had never entered her mind. Was, she went through it. And basically, her answer was, I like it. And I, and I said, I mean, she didn't say it that simply, but that was basically the answer. Is, I, I, I think this is beautiful. I like this. Okay, Um trying not to be a jerk here, but so you're banking life in eternity, and I'd already laid out what I thought was true in a previous conversation, and your rejection of that because you like it. That's, that's, that's a pretty big risk man she didn't come over again but um you no know, she was welcome to she just didn't come over no no but the thought of like why the warrant because in postmodernism, you're just encouraged to believe whatever you believe because you believe it good for you that's you and so me just trying to gently probe what makes you think what what you just said corresponds to what is was just an entirely new thought. so Which is to say, people's theology can be crazy, and it can be completely incoherent, and it can be groundless and baseless, but make no doubt they have it. They have a theology. Um, so then the challenge is, is our knowledge of God true? That's, that's the challenge. But no, the- theology is just the guild speak for the knowledge of God, what we believe about God, which would be the simple way of saying it. Yes?
1: Ooh, I have a totally different question now. You brought up Abraham
0: <laughs> in the yes, sermon. Yes, I did.
1: So how was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, etc., saved? How were they saved?
0: Um, go to Romans 3. Great question. I, I'm assuming the logic is because Jesus had not yet died for them, right? Paul answers that. This is. I'll try to tie this into your last question about unbelief and atheism. The most common objection... Um, we get, I get to to God, the Christian worldview, is the problem of evil. In guild speak, theodicy. But we can just say the problem of evil. And um, and basically, the problem of evil is is generally presented as how can there be an all-good God who's all-powerful and knows everything and there still be evil? Paul is going to deal with theodicy exactly upside down. He's going to have the problem of evil he's going to deal with. It's the exact opposite problem of evil we're dealing with. Love this in Romans 3. Okay, So, Romans 3, start in verse 21. Paul, after taking a long aside all the way from 118 through 320, is now back to his thesis, the gospel. So, 118 to 320 is why you need the gospel, the the wrath of God, the condemnation of man, and why there is no escape. So, um, actually, go back to 19, We'll, we'll get the close. Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And he closes his condemnation of all mankind there. This is what he's done for the last two and a half chapters is just case by case, closing escape hatch. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which I'm glad the ESV put that. I know it's a big word, but it's a very precise word and a a, a more common synonym would not do. Propitiation is a thing that which satisfies, absorbs, or removes Wrath. Very precise term. The Greek behind it, likewise very precise. The halosmos word family. And so I'm glad the ESV put propitiation in there. But Jesus was put forward as that which removed, absorbed, took away wrath. Um, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now get this. here's Here's the problem of evil. This was to show God's righteousness. So why did God put Jesus forward publicly? Why couldn't Golgotha have been done privately somewhere else? Why, why, why do it in front of the watching world? This was to show God's righteousness. And when he says God's righteousness, he means something like God's right doing. This was to show that God also does what is right. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Jesus had to be killed publicly precisely so... The world could see God was not unjust in, par- in, in letting his wrath up, remove, pass over for a time. Moses. It wasn't removed from Moses and Abraham and Jacob until Jesus came. But it did pass over. It, it delayed, as it were. And one of the reasons, and so Paul's concerned about God and the problem of evil. The problem, not the way we frame it, but like, how can God be good and not damn everyone to hell? How can God be good and forgive Moses? Jesus was publicly put forward, so God could in effect say, Here, here's how, here's why, here's, this, this is why Moses is okay with me. I'm okay with Moses, because that's why. And it was done publicly for that reason. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins." It was to show his righteousness at the present time and love this, so that he might be justifier, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, just about every other system has God being doing one of the other, but not both. So you go over to Islam and, and Judaism, and you've got a righteous God who judges people, but they have a much harder time. How does he justify? So they, there's gonna be or most of the people I know in the world today, God's a sweetheart, He'll for, he just forgives, it's God's nature to forgive. He's a justifier, but he's not just. And the cross proves God both just, he does what is right, he punishes sin, he does not let the innocent go free, and he's the justifier, he's the one who can make people, pronounce people just, that's the cross. I mean, if you want to summarize the message of Christianity, that's about as summarize as you can get. The, the gospel is how God can be just and justifier. That's the gospel, anyway. Yeah, keep going. Oh, she, they took the mic from you. She and took I, it. Cut off at two questions. <laughs> She's got a third. Okay.
1: Okay, and um, and another example, scriptural example that um, God showed to me, <laughs> is John uh, eight fifty nine. No, fifty eight. Well starting earlier, but when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and saying, you are of your father, the devil, and they said, no, we're not of fornication. Our father's Abraham. And he said, well, they were offended because he said that Abraham knew him. And in verse 58, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, no, that's not the one. Verse 56 Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So, to me, that's an example that Abraham knew Jesus.
0: Oh no! I I think once Abraham died and was taken to the place of comfort, he probably met Jesus at that point. And let me explain. Here's what's like: he probably was almost certainly Mm -hmm. some of the confusion about how things are going to work was lifted. Um, things that God had yet to reveal in Revelation, because of course when Abraham's alive, you, you don't even have the books of Moses. Um, he had he he maybe mm-hmm. had the book of Job, maybe mm-hmm. that's about it. Plus whatever God said to him audibly in his life. So M- Abraham has got tiny amounts of scripture, if anything. What? When he Isaac, yeah. He, what According to Hebrews, it? yeah. Well, no, maybe. That You don't want to read too much into that? God will provide a lamb? Because in the midst, we know how heavily laden God will provide a lamb is, right? We know how that's just echoing and dripping Jesus. But in the immediate reality, God, in fact, did provide a ram caught in the bush. So I, don't, I think Abraham may well have spoken better than he knew. Rather than Abraham saying, son, God will one day. And perhaps even now, I, I think the real crisis of his son in front of him, who's about to, you know, kill, is probably. I don't see any reason for Abraham to necessarily know he's speaking as well as he is, because the first instance meaning is plain and right there, and God does provide a lamp. But Hebrews tells us he was trusting in God to raise his son from the dead. That's amazing. Because he knew God said, through Isaac, not just through any old descendant of Abraham, through this descendant will I make your people as numerous as the sands of the sea. So, how can God have me kill this kid when this kid hasn't had any of his own children? Guess God's got to raise him up. Well, he said we'll be back. We will be back, yes. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, Renee.
1: And when um, Abraham met Melchizedek, I've been told that's a pre incarnate. Um, Christ. That is
0: held by some. I would not agree. I oh, get, I wouldn't okay. Get, wouldn't get in a fight over it, but okay. I don't. Do, do I'll post it up today. Um, the probably the best teaching I've heard on Melchizedek is by D. A. Carson, and he did a message called "Getting Excited About Melchizedek," in which <laughs> it's fantastic. He takes Genesis ten and eleven, he takes Psalm one hundred and ten, and he takes Hebrews um, five, six, and seven. And he puts them together, because those are the three places Melchizedek's mentioned. He's mentioned in the account of mm-hmm. Genesis, he's mentioned in Psalm 110, and he's mentioned in Hebrews. That is it. And he puts it all together in a masterful way. I'll post it up, but he gives some of the reasons why he does not think, guild speak, I don't think Melchizedek is a Christophany, which would be the term for a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's possible. I wouldn't get in a fight about it, but I, I don't think so. Um how yes, about there are the plenty burning of people bush. who
1: do. What? How about the burning Absolutely. bush?
0: Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And well, here's a crazy one. You're in John. Go to John 12. <laughs> this one is remarkable, right? Okay. John 12. Verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before him, they did not, still did not believe in him. So the words spoke by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore, Isaiah said, therefore they, therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart in a pause. Anyone know where this is found in Isaiah? And does anyone know how chapter 6 begins? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Right? This big, glorified picture of God. Okay? Verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. That's Jesus in Isaiah 6. So, I mean, that's just boom. You know, I mean, as far as I can tell, be interested in testing this hypothesis out. As far as I can tell, Jesus is the person of the Godhead who is always, as far as I can tell, always the one who is mediating between man and yes. God. Whenever God shows up to speak to someone, it's Jesus. I wouldn't be surprised. Could not prove it. Would not be surprised if the member of the Trinity walking in the garden with Adam and Eve is Jesus. That, that would seem perfectly consistent to me. Couldn't prove it that would be my hypothesis is wherever I can prove it, wherever I can figure out which member of the Godhead is here interacting, is Jesus um, so, I, yes Sarah would that hold true with Moses meeting with God? Yeah, I think it would um, we are told in Corinthians that the, the pillar of fire is Jesus, G- I mean, yeah so, uh, again things not to write books about things not to, you know Start sex and movements on, but there does seem to be a consistent pattern. so the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament who shows up and talks to um, Samson's parents, that's almost certainly Jesus um, pre-incarnate Christ, technically Jesus is the name given to him after he's born. so you wouldn't rightly be calling him Jesus actually um, in a sense. I mean we can call yeah we can call him Jesus, but um, so yeah, okay. Yes. Other questions? I, I eventually do have a handout. But this is we're having a good discussion. That's cool. Go, let's go. She does. Tell you what. Can I have some Sarah? Can you help hand? Can I get someone to help hand these out? Sorry. Even if we don't get through them today, I do want to hand them out to you.
1: And this might be something for another time. But I'm exactly. wondering. Um, Actually, I need a copy. Can I have one copy? The Jews are looking for a Messiah,
0: right? The ones who are practicing, yes.
1: Um. They don't believe the Messiah has come. What no. are they looking for?
0: A geopolitical savior.
1: Geopolitical. Yep.
0: A earthly. No, today. An earthly. So, okay. So, you go to Psalm 2. Go to Psalm 2. They're looking for Psalm 2. Mm-hmm. To keep it as simple as possible. we are looking for Psalm 2. They want a Messiah who is feared by and rules the other nations. They want a Messiah who in Jesus' day would cast off Rome. Probably today would be something like establish peace in the Middle East and and silence Islam around them and exalt Israel, something like that. They're looking for Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, that's Messiah. Remember, Messiah is Messiah, Hebrew. Christos is Greek. And anointed is English for the same thing. So when you say anointed, when you say Christ, when you say Messiah, you're simply saying the same thing in three languages. So against the Lord and against his messiah, against his Messiah, let us burst their bonds apart, cast their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, I holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. This is the Davidic language of the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. Um, you are my son today, begotten. You ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Now that language gets picked up in Revelation. When Jesus returns, according to the book Revelation, he will set up a geopolitical kingdom. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Three different times in Revelation 2, 27, 12, 5, and 19, 15, that rod of iron language is used. But it isn't... Um, Descriptive of his first coming, they, they were looking. What we would say we're looking for in a second coming, they're looking for in the Messiah's first coming. The, the, the political deliverance, the, the smashing of enemies, the, the rescuing of a earthly people—all those things they're looking for in their Messiah's first coming. That's that's the mistake. So the she doesn't have the microphone, folks. Uh,
1: but what offends them is that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, yes. and he turned the other cheek. Yes. That's what offends them apparently, yes. right?
0: According to 1 Corinthians, that's exactly what offends them. 1 Corinthians 1. Um, so Jews, hold on, let me read it. If you can't quote it, look it up. Um, okay. So, yeah, there it is. 120 Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, they are looking for this powerful, sign working Messiah. And Greeks want wisdom. We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, a crucified Messiah. No, the Messiah smashes his enemies with a rod of iron. He doesn't get nailed to a tree. That's precisely the issue they're stumbling over. We saw Jesus' own disciples stumble over that and almost fall away. I mean, when he's walking on the road to a maze, oh, we had hoped, we had hoped he was the one who could deliver Israel, but they killed him. I mean, they don't have a category either. They just don't fall away. But yeah, it's the, the shame, the reproach on the Messiah is what they stumble over. Absolutely.
1: But being raised for the dead is not a powerful enough sign.
0: (laughs) If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets. See, we came back round. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone is raised from the dead. Okay? Do I have 10 minutes to walk you through what this is? Let me just walk you through this and take 10 minutes to walk through this. Um, So, the whole point of this little handout you have is to argue that the Bible accounts for its own writing. Now, again, someone would say that's a circular argument. You can't appeal to the Bible to support the Bible. All I'm trying to say is, if we're going to take the Bible's testimony at all, the Bible gives an account of how it was written. People will say things like, "Oh, men just wrote things down," and you know. Now, the Bible tells us what happened. And the other thing I want to point out is, the Bible insists that there is no distinction in power or authority or our responsibility. Whether God speaks audibly, whether an angel comes and talks, whether a prophet comes, or whether you have a book in your hands, there is the same amount of power, the same amount of responsibility, and the same amount of authority. That's what I'm trying to argue. And it's it's scripture heavy, so I'm just going to walk through the argument. I'd encourage you to read this on your own sometime, walk through this. Um, this is me leaning incredibly heavily on Wayne Grudem. He, he wrote a chapter in a book on biblical authority and inerrancy, and I thought it was so well-argued that I pretty much ripped it off. So um, I don't claim any credibility for the, uh, the uh, originality of this content. So first, Old Testament reports of direct speech made f- from God to men and women. And the other thing I'm trying to get at is this. You'll commonly hear today statements like... Um, Human language couldn't possibly communicate divine truth. It's a weak attempt. It, it, you know, it, it, It's limited, right? So the very first encounter, you got Adam in the garden. God's talking to him. And there's not the slightest indication of Adam going, what exactly do you mean not to eat? I mean, could I nibble? Could I? Like, God speaks. Adam hears. Adam disobeys. Adam's found guilty. Neither God nor Adam enter into any sort of... Um, Semantics disputes about what words mean. The point simply being, um, the Old Testament reports a number of accounts where God speaks to man directly. Not a ton of them, like Moses, Abraham, Adam. Um, and it insists that the Bible's recording not just that, that God said stuff, but the actual words. So Exodus one twenty one to 1-2. God spoke all these words, saying, direct quotation, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That was a slavery. Where well, the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, sorry, go from your country and your kids and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. So that's the first step in the link in the chain. And if I'm talking to someone who's struggling with a book, I'll say, let me ask this. Um, could God speak and be understood to people? like These accounts, is that, or is that beyond his ability? Because this is all done. I'm, what I'm trying to push back against is the hermeneutics of humility, where people are like we just these are human, these are man's words, these are weak, these are frail, faulty things. And yes, it can it can sort of um, at times give us some inclination, some inkling of what God's getting at, but we really can't deal with it that precisely. Okay, get rid of the book for a moment. If God wanted to show up and talk to somebody, could he communicate clearly and precisely? And usually they'll grant that. Cool. The Bible records he's done exactly that. Great. Okay, next step. Sometimes... God sent prophets with his own words. Prophets are viewed as authoritative messengers of God who spoke not just his message, but his very words. And I'm going to show you some texts that insist on that. Not just the message. There are times where it seems like just the message. Go warn Pharaoh, or go warn Nineveh. But there are other times where it's explicit. You will say these exact words to them. That they spoke God's very words is what sets them apart from all other prophets. So Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 20. I will raise up for you a prophet like you from among your brothers. I will put my words, not my thoughts, not my ideas, my words into his mouth. And he shall speak to them in all that I command. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. So two things. This, this prophet, at least sometimes prophets are said to speak Word for word, what God wants them to say. And when they do that, God says, you're just as accountable, just as responsible, as if I myself were doing it audibly. In other words, there's absolutely no loss of clarity, responsibility, or authority, whether the words are spoken out of the air by God himself or whether a prophet is showing up to do it. They're they're one and the same. That's the point I'm trying to argue here. Another example, um, Exodus 4, God speaking to Moses... Now, therefore, go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And notice the specificity of these claims. It's not just, Moses, you put, find the words, you figure it out, but just go tell Pharaoh to let my people go, however you want to do that. Put it in your own words. I'll be with you and teach your mouth what you should say. Or Ezekiel 2.7, you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse. Thus, what the prophet says in God's name God says. So when a prophet's functioning properly, the Bible treats God speaking to Abraham, God speaking to Adam, and a prophet rightly speaking for God as identical in the matter of authority, accuracy, and responsibility. Okay? So 1 Kings 2119, you shall say to him, then me open quotation marks, thus says the Lord, have you killed and taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dog licks up the blood of Naboth, shall the Dogs lick your own blood. Um, not, not very happy saying there. but And I'm not going to go through all these examples, but you'll see that. Um, so, to, to dis, so what the prophet says in God's name, God says, which turn over to page two, thus, to disbelieve or disobey anything a prophet says is to disbelieve or disobey God. Probably the most striking example is First Samuel. So... Um, the prophet Samuel comes to King Saul and says, wait, this is the word of the Lord, wait for me four days and I'll offer the sacrifice. And Saul does not do that. And he tells Saul, that, this is the word of the Lord, you're going to go strike Amal- Amalek with the s- edge of the sword, you shall not leave anyone alive. And Saul doesn't do that. And so Samuel comes back in Sir Samuel 13, 3 to f- 13 to 14, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly, you have not... Kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. And Saul does not say, wait a second, God didn't say anything to me, Samuel. You did. Samuel treats Saul's refusal to listen to what he says as, not treats. He names it, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Because there's no shift when a prophet's functioning properly. It's as though God himself is speaking. There's no distinction. And then a little later, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? What do you mean, Samuel? I never heard the voice of the Lord. I only heard your voice. Because when Samuel is functioning properly, rightly authorized... It's notice no difference as though God. So when Saul doesn't obey Samuel, he doesn't obey God. When Saul doesn't heed Samuel's voice, he is not heeding the Lord's voice. Okay, so that's the first point. God. Himself, so if you think of the chain, God Himself can speak authoritatively and clearly. God can give words to prophets to speak authoritatively and clearly, no loss. And then God is the one who can write. This down, and it's not going to lose anything there either. There are also many accounts of the writing of words that were taken to be God's words in written form. So Exodus 24, 4, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Exodus 34, 27, the Lord said to Moses, write these words. Notice it's God who's making the move. From oral to written. It's God who's initiating that move. This isn't man's idea. This isn't something man came up with. At least the text is crediting God with responsibility for the move from oral to writing. The Lord said to Moses, write these words in accordance with these words. I have made a covenant with you and the people of Israel. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage. Um, And then thus, when we get to the end of Deuteronomy, Moses has got a book in his hand. When Moses had finished writing these words of the law in a book to the very end, which is why Joshua, in Joshua 1, eight I don't have it here, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you be careful to do according to all that was written in it, for then you will make a way prosperous, and then you will find success. He's got a book, because Moses gave him a book. And, and so God starts then talking about his word in written form. Um, there are many passages that demonstrate the reverence and care for which the scripture exhort and expects that we will treat the words of God. Um, Deuteronomy 12.32 everything I command you you should be careful to do you shall not add to it or take from it and then you start getting into the Psalms and you start seeing David's absolute reverence and awe of this written word again with no inkling that we've lost anything whether it's God himself speaking whether it's the prophet speaking God's very words or whether it's the words the prophet wrote down at God's command you're dealing with the same thing. Um, so the New Testament and its authors have a consistently high view of Scripture. You can read through those. Um, I'll just want to point out one at the bottom of page three. Now remember, and then we'll end with this. Um, the last page, by the way, just shows examples of the New Testament writers taking the Old Testament claims, especially historical claims, as fact. Um, look, at, look at Hebrews 3, 7. This is amazing. The way, so one of the things that's interesting is all the different ways biblical authors will introduce biblical quotations. And in Hebrews 3.7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he cites David in Psalm 95. Now the Greek is even clearer because it's a present active indicative verb. You could translate it as the Holy Spirit is saying. And I think what he's getting at is if you're reading Psalm 95... You're hearing the voice and the word of God. You're hearing the Holy Spirit who authored this. And even though this is hundreds and hundreds of years after David wrote this, he's as the Holy Spirit is saying, it's crazy. So all that to say that, that the, the issue of, well, haven't we, this, the Bible insists this is no different in its clarity authority, and our responsibility Then, if an angel of God showed up here right now and started speaking to us. There, there's an absolute continuity of clarity, responsibility, and authority. That, that's basically the point of this, um, is taking on the Bible's terms such hermeneutics of hum, humility, and I couldn't possibly, you know, actually I'll end with one final point. John Piper made this point. It's a great point. We need to be very suspicious of a humility that sounds something like this. I couldn't possibly trust myself to understand what my master has told me to do. Therefore, I will do as I please. You know, that wouldn't fly if I called my children in. Okay, come on in. Then you find Sophie. Why didn't you come in? I wasn't exactly sure what you meant, Father. I didn't want to presume and, and be arrogant and think that I understood you because you're so much greater than I am. So I just kept playing. That wouldn't fly. Anyway. Thank you. See you all next week.